0: Welcome back to Launch Student News, a show that gives students a behind-the-scenes peek at the career paths of professional journalists and the stories they tell. I'm Victoria Fong, and today's guest is Kim Kelly, who is a labor columnist for Teen Vogue and contributor to Baffler. She's also written four publications, including The Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Pitchfork, NPR, The New Republic, and The New York Times. She's currently writing a book called Fight Like Hell. Hi, Kim. Thanks for joining us. you mentioned um, your first like professional writing gig like how exactly were you able to make the transition from your school newspaper to that gig?
1: Right and then this is all happening when I was like 15 so I used professional a little loosely but I was involved through the school newspaper I got involved in this program that my county newspaper the Burlington County Times had called the Teen Voice program which brought together uh, student journalists from various high schools in the area and gave us a section in the, you know, the real newspapers to write about things. And I wrote about sports and music. And then I remember writing a specific column. This was around like 2003, 2004. So I distinctly remember writing a column about how George W. Bush was a warmonger. So I guess it, <laughs> I started pretty early. And I've kind of kept that vibe for the past 17, 20, for the past while.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. So after um high school you um went to Drexel University where you currently have a bachelor's, um, with a major in the musical industry. Um, were you always like um interested in writing about like the music industry or like did you ever plan to like be like a musician yourself?
1: I never planned to be a musician. Um but writing about music wasn't my first my first goal when I was a teenager was I wanted to go to uh I had this whole plan. I was going to go to upstate New York to a liberal arts college and get a political science degree and become a senator and change the world. But then I got into heavy metal and I kind of, my my interest kind of took a different direction and I decided I wanted to write about music. And I was in high school, I was writing for like little webzines and blogs and things like that. And when I got into Drexel, into the music industry program, I just wanted to be a music journalist, but that's not really a, a common career path so they didn't have anything specifically set up for that so I just learned a lot about the industry and copyright law and kind of took picked and chose what made sense for me I don't uh (laughs) I will say I don't actually have a bachelor's I'm a few credits short I guess I'm technically a college dropout so (laughs) that's another part of it the whole non-traditional vibe to my whole career I suppose like keeping it weird every step of the way (laughs)
0: Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, um, your like, career has been a little bit like non-traditional. Is that like a path you would recommend, I guess, to other student journalists? Like you um, cover obviously like the music industry and heavy metal a lot. Like, So you probably have a lot of domain knowledge like from your college days. Would you like recommend students like pursue journalism specifically or like the beat they're interested in covering?
1: That's a hard question because I, hmm. I think it depends on what they're interested in, right? Like, if you are interested in hard news reporting, like you want to work in the newsroom of the New York Times or a local newspaper, then focusing on gaining those skills is really important. But a lot of that you can also kind of learn on the job and learn as you go. You don't have to go to journalism school to be a journalist. Like, I was like a heavy metal dirtbag that knew how to write pretty well and I just kind of figured it out from there, you know? I think you need to identify what's important to you and what you want to spend the next. 10 to 20 to 30 years on, and then kind of go from there. Like, there's no one right way to become a journalist.
0: For sure. So um, you obviously, like, got started in the journalism industry, like, during high school. But, like, what was your first job, like, after college in the journalism industry?
1: First job after college? Huh, actually, the first, well, I, like I said, I didn't graduate. But I did walk into graduation because I had a friend in in the – like, the office to let me do it, but, like, four days after I, quote, unquote, finished college, I hopped on a plane, and went down to Florida, and went on tour with my friend's heavy metal band, and I spent the next four years all, like, traveling the country, selling t-shirts, and hauling gear, and in the middle of that, I also had a couple other, I was still writing, I was doing PR, I was doing all kinds of things. I didn't have, like, a a moment where I left college and got a job. I just kind of pull together a bunch of different hustles. Hey, I'm so excited to be here talking to you today.
0: I'm so excited you're on as well. So on your Twitter and Patreon, you mentioned that you wrote for your high school newspaper. What was the experience like?
1: Yeah, I've always been a writer. You know, I was always that kid walking around scribbling in a notebook and, you know, reading books in the playground, being a big nerd. So when I got to high school and I realized that we had a school newspaper, I was excited to get involved. You know, I, I can't remember exactly what I was writing about those days, but doing that led to my first, I guess, professional-ish writing gig. So it was a really good jumping off point.
0: So, like, you've been a freelance writer for a lot of different um, and top publications, including The Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and Pitchfork. Do you still remember how you got started at those um, publications or a different, like, um, entry story you like to share?
1: yeah so the thing with getting into these legacy publications places with big fancy names you you kind of only need a few good bylines to give yourself the credibility to get your foot in the door like and if you have a good idea i I think that we when we talk about freelancing a lot. there's a lot of focus on like, how do you get into these big publications? How do you get your foot in the door? And the most important part of that whole process is having a good pitch. Like if you have a good story and you can show that you're the person to write it and you can back it up and you know what you're talking about, like editors are looking for stories. Even if you don't have you know, a fancy resume or a fancy list of clips on your website or a website at all, like the story is the most important thing. But when it does come to those, those you know bigger publications, it does help having some bylines to your name. So I think when I was younger, when I was pitching these places, uh, I had done so much writing for other blogs and smaller websites that I could kind of back it up, be like, look, like here's stuff I've done and I can pull this off. And once you get one or two fancy bylines, you can throw them out in every pitch and that automatically adds a little bit of extra credibility.
0: You also um write columns for, like, publications like Teen Vogue and Baffler, a goal that many student journalists and even, like, freelance writers have. Like, how did you get started um, writing for those columns? So
1: Teen Vogue, I initially started working with them in 2017, I want to say. I was just doing, I cold pitched them a couple, like, prison industrial complex articles and formed a decent working relationship with my editor there. And then... The, the regular column part came into play after I'd written a couple pieces that had done really well and, uh, on labor. And I reached out and was like, hey, you guys have been getting a lot of positive attention for the things I'm writing. And it seems like it's going pretty well. What if you gave me a regular column? Like, let me write, let me do this a couple times a month, guaranteed. So as a freelancer, I can depend on that. And you, like, mm-hmm. I can depend on the income. You can depend on the content it does, it's helpful for editors as well as freelancers to have that kind of steady gig. Now, I don't work there. I'm not an employee. I'm still an independent contractor, but it kind of helps everybody. If you can show that you're dependable, you can dependably come up with good ideas and take one less, you know, one less thing off their plate. Like they know twice a month they'll have something by me to publish. Mm -hmm. I think you need to build up that relationship. You can't just you can, but I wouldn't recommend just strolling in and being like, hey, I'm so-and-so. Here's my idea. Also, give me a column. That ain't going to work. Yeah. But, but if you build up that relationship and show that you're dependable and you have good ideas, I think, you know, it's not that, it's not that hard. Well, I wouldn't say that. Everything's hard, but it's not that complicated. Like, it's something that you can do, essentially. It's not like some kind of mythical, you know, unachievable goal.
0: What advice um, would you give to student journalists hoping to break into similar publications someday, especially those from underrepresented backgrounds?
1: Right. So something that we're seeing now that is really welcome is that there are editors who are actively trying to find younger voices and people coming from these marginalized backgrounds. And as much as it can be a pain, Twitter is a really useful tool here because all the editors in the world, all the writers, all of the, the media lives on Twitter. And a lot of times you'll see calls for pitches and sometimes they'll specifically say, we're looking for perspectives from, you know, black indigenous people of color or from queer writers or from young or high school writers. Um, I would also recommend something that's been a huge help to me and to a lot of other people. There are multiple newsletters and writer communities that you can sign up for. Some are free, some, you know, they ask a little bit of money, like study hall is a huge one. Um, That's just a freelancer community that sends out like job listings and pitch information and just kind of fosters a a community because as a freelancer especially when you're starting out you don't have these ingrained networks to build on it can be kind of scary and you're not really sure what to do with yourself so luckily there are communities online where you can plug in and get involved and hopefully get some bylines going.
0: What does a typical work day for you look like?
1: (laughs) Man let's Well, since, you know, since March, everything changed. I don't think there is a typical work day. But even before then, I was kind of, it kind of varies by the day. It depends on what I'm doing. Some weeks I have two or three stories due. And some weeks I don't have anything. I'm doing research for the next week. But like usually, you know, I'll wake up and have breakfast and work out and check my emails. And then I'll either be doing things like transcribing or chasing down invoices, coming up with story ideas, talking to editors, like doing kind of all the nuts and bolts admin things during the day. And then in the evening, take a break. My other half has a job where he actually leaves the house. So I like to hang out with him and uh, take care of household stuff and you know, to be a person for a little while. But then he goes to sleep pretty early because he works on a farm. So he wakes up super, super early. So I do most of my actual writing late at night between like midnight and 4 a.m. And I wake up in the morning, late, early afternoon, and then start it all over again. I'm kind of a a vampire when it comes to writing.
0: Yeah, you mentioned like thinking of story ideas as part of your daily routine, and you write like a lot of stories um, regularly, like both for your columns and like more one-off stories. How do you think of your story ideas?
1: I read a lot, and I'm very interested in... I'm deeply interested in a handful of specific things. Like I'm always keeping an eye on labor news and what workers are talking about, what union people are talking about. Interested in music, obviously. I have a couple other interests that I like to weave in and see if I can kind of find ways to incorporate them when I'm writing about. Like uh, I'm working on a story right now that I'm excited about that is kind of at the intersection of a lot of interests. It's about uh, a satanic tea company and I really love tea, and I love heavy metal, and there's a little bit of a labor element, so it's, yeah, it's just a matter of paying attention, and then anything that, and I get a lot of emails and tips and press releases too, so I, my biggest problem is I kind of have too many ideas and not enough time.
0: (laughs) So um, over the years, like you just mentioned, you've written many topics about a diverse um, number of topics. What are some of your favorite pieces that you've written over the years, and why?
1: Oh man, I've a whole bunch. Um, let, me, let me see. There's one piece that I was really proud of um, that I wrote when I was back as the editor of Noisy, which was Vice's music publication, I worked there for like five years. Um, I wrote a piece about this movement in Sweden that was called Kill the Kings that was happening as the broader Me Too conversation was unfolding. And it was specifically focused on how women in the heavy metal scene were pushing back against misogyny, And sexism and rape culture in their community, and that's something I've been, you know, I've been a woman for the whole, you know, whole life, and been involved in heavy metal for basically my whole life, and I've dealt with, you know, the negative parts of that too. And you know, it was it was a topic that hit close to home, and I felt like I was able to amplify in a way that was really gratifying. And um, let's see, what other cool things have I written? Oh, there's a piece for the New Republic I wrote earlier this year that I was really happy about. Uh, Well, not happy that it needed to be written, but happy with how it came out, where I spoke to a number of the striking sanitation workers in New Orleans. They're called hoppers. They've been on strike for, God, almost two, two or three months now. But I talked to them a couple months ago just about what they were dealing with and how that kind of intersected with civil rights history because they were using the slogan, I am a man which harken back to the 1968 sanitation worker strike, which you know that's when the site of Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s final speech, he was there to support those workers mm-hmm. and being able to connect that history with this current struggle is something that I really try to do a lot in my work because I feel like we're not ever gonna get to where we need to be if we don't understand how far we've come and where we came from. So pieces that where I'm able to take a historical background and current events and kind of marry them together to show that through line are my favorite. And I'm working on a couple of those right now. I've got like eight stories due this month, I don't even know.
0: Oh wow, you're really busy.
1: <laughs> no rest for the wicked.
0: <laughs> like what makes a really like strong like labor piece? Um like what makes a really strong like music piece, I guess? Oh,
1: okay. Um, well, when it comes to writing that kind of story, the ones that I, I think, you know, do the job the best are the ones that focus on, uh, like, the personal experiences of the people involved. Like, when you're speaking to workers directly about what's happening and not just relying on press releases or what, you know, communications workers are saying. Like, when you, when you get to the heart of the matter and say, like, how is this impacting you? How do you feel? Like, it, or even when you're writing about a band, like, okay, your new record is awesome that rules. But like, what was going through your head when you're writing it? What were you trying to say? Like, I think just keeping that personal aspect to it and keeping that human aspect because like humans want to read about other humans. Like that's, we're drawn to it one another, especially at a a moment like this when we're so disconnected. So yeah, I think just trying to remember that you're writing about real human people that have thoughts and feelings and opinions and, yeah, you know, they deserve to be heard.
0: Yeah, are there like any examples um, that you've written that you would say um, are like really good narrative pieces? I know you mentioned like a few like um, in my earlier question. Narrative pieces.
1: I'm trying to think of like, because I do write uh, a lot, and I, it's hard to keep track of what all I have done there. Oh, actually, there are some things. So some of the the writing this past year that's meant a lot to me has been about what incarcerated people are dealing with in rikers because one of my best friends has been there for the past 10 months 10 and a half months now
0: that's horrible
1: yeah it's yeah oh yeah i'll leave it at that it's it's terrible and he nobody should be there. he he really shouldn't be there um but you know so he's been living through the coronavirus pandemic in that environment and seeing how that's unfolding and, and impacting the other people around him. So I was able to write a couple stories with his perspective and interviewing him and interviewing other people that he's in there with about you know, the medical situation, the sanitation situation, how the people, well, how the men are feeling. Um, yeah, that kind of story where it makes more sense for the writer to step back and let uh, the, your subjects' voices take the front, like take the forefront. Those are the ones I think ring the truest because at the end of the day, nobody really cares what I have to say. Like the story isn't about me, I'm just handing someone the microphone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I mean, some journalists maybe don't see it that way. That's their That's right or their whatever, but I'm, I'm here to amplify. I don't wanna be taking up all the space. I'm here to kind of clear the clear the path and hand you the mic.
0: Yeah. So it, we- with all like the layoffs happening recently because of of the COVID nineteen pandemic, and I suppose on a like a more famous scale, like very recently the NBA strike or boycott, as some people have called it, there's been a, a lot of discussion about labor and labor rights recently. Have you noticed any common mistakes in um coverage?
1: Gosh, well, if you bring up the NBA strike. That's such a good example because. God, there, there's this bizarre reticence with so many big publications to call it what it is, which is a strike. They're saying, oh, it's a boycott. And that's just factually incorrect. Like <laughs> That's just not what the definition of a strike is. A boycott is when you withhold your money. A strike is when you withhold your labor. But even baseline questions like that, it really does illustrate how little how little overall knowledge there is of labor and working class issues and just the condition of work in this country when it comes to people who are working at big publications that don't have that background and don't haven't done that research don't have that knowledge and that's i mean that is not a helpful thing that is that is an issue that i think really needs to be addressed because i mean if you can look at what happened with the mba and not immediately think oh that's a strike that's awesome how's that going to impact the rest of the movement how does that fall into that broader history because this isn't the first professional sports strike by a long shot like there is a long history of political activism and labor activism within that world even if maybe it's not the first thing that springs to mind when you think about unions like there's so much there and just dismissing it as a boycott just does a disservice to your readers and to the workers and to you know your own craft I think there is I mean there's a lack of labor education in general like there's you're not gonna learn about these things in high school you're probably only gonna learn about them in college if you seek them out like it's not a lot of these things aren't common knowledge like strikes and picket lines and what a scab is like all these very basic labor concepts it's it is strange sometimes to be as immersed as I am in this world and to kind of peek my head out and realize oh Oh, okay. We still have some more explaining to do. <laughs>
0: yeah, I was very confused about like the NBA um, strike and like the boycott um, term you'll use because like I feel like in elementary school the a Montgomery bus boycott people should be already aware of what a boycott is, but I guess not. <laughs> I don't know how many people paid attention in that class,
1: I guess. If they had, we probably would be in less of a terrible situation in this country.
0: Yeah. So um you mentioned how you're working on eight stories right now I think could you share like any details about like some of the stories you're working on Um this
1: month I have so I have a couple regular columns which means that I've got to file those every month even if <laughs> even if I don't want to Um let's see I have uh there's a couple things for teen book I usually I don't plan out stories that far in advance this often. Usually I kind of wait and see what pops up, but there is a piece I'm working on for Teen Vogue uh, about garment workers in Myanmar and how they're facing repercussions for trying to unionize over there, which I think is really important. Um, There's a couple pieces for Esquire I'm working on about metal, like that are metal adjacent. One's an interview with someone I'm really excited about. I'm gonna keep to myself, but (laughs) it'd be cool. yeah, honestly. It's funny. It's September 4th, so I know what I have to do, but I haven't picked specific topics for all of them. I kind of, I'm pretty organized, but I'm also a little chaotic. I think everyone's feeling that right now. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the kind of things I cover, it's, you know, sometimes there's breaking stories and there's new events that pop up and like, I kind of have to be nimble and be able to move on my feet and be able to see like, okay, that happened here's why I can connect it to this or this or this and turn it into a story. Like, yeah, especially because it's so early, it would probably be a bad idea to roll up and be like, here are my eight things. I'm not going to touch anything else for the month. But uh, yeah, also I just like surprises. So oh, tell yeah. you much.
0: <laughs> I'll be on the watch for your new stories. So you're currently writing a book, um, Fight Like Hell, which dives into the history of labor movements in America and it's something you've covered like in journalistic pieces as well. Could you walk us through like the details and like the process of like from idea to like publishing soon?
1: Sure. Well, it's not going to publish until 2022 because I haven't written it yet. (laughs) Um, The way, and and there's, there's various kinds of ways to, to, you know, bring a book into being, but in my experience, I, so I have an agent and I've been talking with him for, it's been a couple of years now. We've been working on various proposals and we, earlier this year, we got one together and we're like, okay, this is the one we're done. We're going to shop it around. And he took it out to a bunch of publishers. And then we had an auction where the ones that were interested put in bids and, um, Eventually, one came out at the top as one signal. It's my publisher now, and they bought the book. And now I've got about a year to write it, and then it'll be out. It should be out in May, hopefully May Day 2022. And there's a lot, you know, I've never written a book before, but yeah. I know a lot of people who have, so I've been getting advice from my friends. And I'm going to be spending the next few months doing research and really digging deep and trying to plot out what I want to do, and then I have to write it. And then they're going to edit it and we do all the fun stuff. And then eventually I'll have a book. Like I'm sort of, yeah, you know, this is, I'm a little shell-shocked around the whole thing because I've never done it before, but I'm excited. And I'm excited to be able to take, because you know, when I, I have covered a lot of these things before in my columns and in pieces, but I don't have that much time usually to dive into something. Like usually something's due, I got to turn around, I have 1,500 words, I got to go, go, go. With a book, I have more space to really kind of burrow in and find the the little connecting threads I might have missed otherwise. So I'm looking forward to really, just really digging in and kind of like surrounding myself in this material and picking out the most interesting pieces.
0: Mm -hmm. On a slightly similar note, you've been working as a labor reporter for a pretty long time now. Have you noticed a change in the interest and conversation over the years? So it's funny, I haven't been doing this that long.
1: I've been writing about labor, if not exclusively as a focus, only really for the past three years or so. Before that, I've been a heavy metal journalist for way longer. But um, yeah, in terms of labor reporting, for my, I have friends I've been around for much longer, like Sarah Jaffe and Hamilton Nolan, Stephen Greenhouse. They have, you know, I've, I've learned a lot from them. And the way that they have explained it to me, it's like, look, in the past, like in the past few years, there's been a huge upswing and interest is kind of reporting and i mean that's good for me it means i have more places to write and more people are interested in reading about it but i think a lot of that has to do with honestly the digital media unionization wave that have started happening in 2015 when gawker unionized and then when vice my previous employer unionized i was part of that process there and being part of that process of unionizing a company or a section of a company and having real practical experience with all of those those pieces of bargaining and you know working at a contract and labor management meetings, like all this stuff that you wouldn't know unless you were there in person um that had a huge impact on why i decided to to shift into this kind of writing and i think the fact that so many other digital media publications have unionized in the past you know in the past five years means that there are now lots of other people have had that firsthand experience of what it's like to form a union and to bargain and to face down your boss and the fact that they have that experience has made a big difference in the way that labor stores are covered in at the very least in the digital space because now there are so many people who care and who understand and who are pro-union and pro-labor that otherwise might not have paid attention and i think that's had a big impact on the way the industry has kind of shifted towards focusing on these stories. And that's coupled with, you know, the current crisis of unemployment and the pandemic and the rise of fascism, like there was a lot of things happening. And, you know, basically every story is a labor story when you, when you dig into it deep enough. Everything has a labor angle. And I think now people are just taking the time to, to look a little harder and find it. And I think that's only a good thing.
0: Mm, for sure. So um, why do you think student journalism matters? Like, as we touched earlier um, in this interview, you, you are a part of your student newspaper.
1: Right. I mean, that's where, I mean, that's where young journalists come from, right? Like people that, because if you're a teenager, you're in high school, there are a lot of ways you can spend your time. Going to meetings and talking to editors and writing up stories, like, that is a conscious choice. Like, you want to be there. And the stories you're writing you're the person who's best qualified to write them because you're coming from your perspective and your community and your school. I think the amount of dedication and drive it takes to be committed to journalism as a teenager, when like you could just be dick around on TikTok, which no disrespect, looks like fun, but Mm -hmm. I was a nerd. And I know there's a lot of other nerds out there who are taking advantage of that opportunity. Now the fact that so much is online, the barriers to entry are so much smaller like, when I was, almost, I don't to say when I was your age, it makes me sound mad old, but when I was growing up, I, I didn't really have, we barely had, like, the internet. Like, that was a new thing for me, at least. Like, MySpace was the big thing when I was a student journalist. Things have changed a lot since then. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're the kind of person who is a teenager and you already know what you want to do, like, you have so many more tools available even if your own school doesn't necessarily support that or have a platform you can go on medium or go on twitter and do your own reporting like there aren't any constraints to it and Mm -hmm. the fact that now there's so much information available so quickly like it's wild i wish i could have come up in this environment but i didn't so now i'm just really excited to see what the next generation is doing with all this stuff
0: So, like, you mentioned, like, digital information being one of the greatest changes, like, since, like, when you were in high school to now. Where do you see the future of the journalism industry headed?
1: That's a big question, right? Like, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, there was this huge push towards video. There was this idea, like, oh, people want video. People want video. They don't care about the written word anymore. Obviously, that's not the case. Um, right now, podcasts are a huge thing. And I think they probably have more staying power. I think the future that we're go- the future of journalism, <laughs> is a small question there. The answer the your question, I think it's gonna be, you know, people embracing multimedia tools. Like it's gonna be social media, it's gonna be video, it's gonna be podcasts, it's gonna be written, the written word. I think people are gonna be using all of these tools they have at their, their disposal to really get these stories out there. And, you know, I don't think, I mean, there absolutely is space for, you know, your small local newspaper that you pick up at the coffee shop every morning. That's important too. We need those too. Local news is a hugely important thing. But from what I've seen from the younger generation, it's a very digital native community. People are always online. Like y'all have little chips implanted (laughs) in your head at this point. So like, I think it's going to be The future will be multimedia at the very least, though I do hope people are still interested in the craft of, you know, writing and the written word and, you know, old school stuff like that too.
0: I hope so too, because I prefer at least like reading over like watching a video, especially for journalism. I also heard like there's gonna be like VR and AR these past few years, but I don't think that's really like taken off yet.
1: God, that's, I didn't even consider that. I'm like, I'm not even old. I'm like 32, but there are so many things I don't even have the comprehension of that are coming and that the younger generations, younger than me and then even younger than you are going to be dealing with. But I think as long as we have some kind of journalism, as long as people are trying to tell these stories and tell the truth, it almost doesn't matter the tools they're using. It's just as long as they're doing it.
0: Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Hmm. I feel like I've, I've
1: said a lot, but I would just, yeah. I, oh, one thing that I think is important is that a lot of, there, there's this, this kind of perception that in order to be a journalist, you have to be totally objective all the time. Like, that's what they teach you in journalism school. You can't pick a side. You got to keep politics out of it. I think that's bullshit. So I've never done that in my life, and I'm doing okay. Like, I don't think we're at a time when that's even a responsible way to approach the news because of what's happening, because of the importance of the social and political movements around us. I think you do a disservice to your readers and to yourself if you pretend that you haven't picked a side. Not picking a side is picking a side. Not everyone has the luxury of saying, oh, I'm not going to get involved. Like, it's, I would say for younger people to not be afraid to be to stick to your convictions and to be vocal about how you feel and where you stand because we need more journalists like that we don't need any more you know milk toast like oh I'm I'm so objective I don't even vote type of like ivory tower nerds we're done with that canceled over it <laughs> like let us know who you are and how you think and how you feel and what you want to fight for because that's what I want to read and that's what we're going to need if we're going to get our you know if we're gonna move forward and we're and the journalism's gonna survive, you gotta pick a side.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Kim. As always, if you're a student, teacher, or administrator looking to bring launch student news to your middle or high school, please contact us. If you're a student or professional journalist looking to volunteer, we'd love your help. For both inquiries, fill out the contact form on launchstudentnews.org. You can find me on Twitter at ByVictoriaFone, Instagram at victoriaphone. Kim, where can people find you?
1: I'm also on Twitter at GrimKim, which is my college radio DJ name. And uh, yeah, you can my email address is in the bio, so you can always hit me up and I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can.